Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 8th, 2014. This is episode 1343 of the Survival Podcast. I just did two days on fishing. And as I said, I didn't want to turn this show into the angling hour or something like that. So we're going to talk today about medicinal herbs. But I'm also going to talk about medicinal herbs that are also perennials today. So once they're established, you have them growing for a long time to come. There's some caveats about that today. I'm going to talk about some herbs that can be dangerous if used improperly. I'm going to talk about some herbs that are rumored to be dangerous, but you got to be stupid to make them dangerous. And I'm going to talk about some that are relatively safe. I'll talk more about the warnings when I get into the main content of today's show. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. I didn't plan it this way, but we have a perfect sponsor for today's show, Western Botanicals. If you don't want to wait for the stuff we're talking about to grow today and you want to use it, you can get it in uh, formulated doses from Western Botanicals. It's where I go for all my herbal needs. Um, I use quite a bit of their stuff on occasion, especially when I'm just sore from working in the garden, such as their deep heat ointment and their anti-inflammatory. If I'm a little bit more than just a bit sore, I might even use one of their pain relief formulas, and I'll talk about that today when I talk about some of the herbs that we're going to discuss today, because one of them's in there. Um, but they are you know, a sponsor that I don't just have because I believe in what they do, but they're a sponsor that I have because I am a lifelong customer of these guys. I've been buying from them ever since I heard about them. Uh, which was when they approached me about being sponsors, and we continue to do so. They're also one of the best supporters of the MSB we have. They have a premium membership. Now, people buy this every day for 50 bucks. They sell it to any member of the Survival Podcast for $25. Whether you're MSB or not, if you use their link, you can buy that premium membership for 25 bucks, half price. That gives you 25% off everything that they sell, which adds up if you use herbals in your daily life. But if you're an MSB member, you get it for free for the first year. So that's a $50 product for free for the first year just for being an MSB member, which coincidentally is how much a year of MSB is. So they're huge supporters of the shows, longtime sponsors, great suppliers, premium product. Everything's organic or wildcrafted. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com, and they won't promise you stupid crap like, take this and it'll cure cancer or other crap that's in the supplements and herbal industry. I can't stand nonsense like that. That's why I'm happy and proud to have Western Botanicals as a partner at the Survival Podcast. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Uh, J.M. Bullion's an interesting story. I had this, this sponsor for silver and gold, and she got into an MLM thing where you tell your friends and family to buy silver, and then you get free silver because they're paying like eight times what the dadgone stuff costs. So I fired that sponsor quickly, like immediately, like, you got to go. And then I said, I'm not just going to take the next sponsor on the list. I need a silver and gold sponsor. I went out and found J.M. Bullion. J.M. Bullion is awesome. Pricing better than the two biggest names in the industry, Monix and Atmex, but with personal service. And if you ever have a problem, I can get straight to the president. That's the type of small company I like to do business with, Jam Bullion. If I'm going to buy silver or gold right now, that's directly where I'm going to go buy it at. Check them out today, jambullion.com. They also do a discount for members of the Support Brigade in orders over $300 and in orders over $1,000. It's not huge. The margins are razor thin in the silver and gold market, specifically at the amazing pricing that you get from JM in the first place. And they just wanted to make sure they did offer some additional incentive for members of our support brigades. Check them out today. On that note, consider joining the MSB. If you are not a member support brigade member, consider joining. Why the heck would you join? 
Well, discounts like the two I just told you about to pay for your membership, that would be one reason to consider joining. Supporting the show because you like it and you want it to be on every day because it is how we pay the bills around here, uh, that would be another reason. And great, unique content that's available nowhere but inside the MSB. Those are all good reasons to consider joining the MSB. Please do so today. Uh, if you have not done so, please consider doing so today, I think is the better way to put that. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or first responder, like EMT, paramedic, firefighter, also first uh, active duty or prior service, email me before, not after you join, before you join, email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences is all I need. Tell me about your service. I'll respond to you with a discount code so you can save even more money on a great product. With that, let's get into the year that was the episode. It is 1343. 1343? That's a long time ago. It's 1343 because that's the episode. That's what we do every day now with our history segment. 1343. This year, Oliver III de Sasson has won the golden ticket to the guillotine. He has sided with King Edward III of England in dispute with King Philip the Fortunate over who is the rightful heir to the throne of France. Only France and England can't really fight about that. They agreed to the truce, so they must find something else to fight about, and Oliver loses his head over it. This makes his wife, Jean de Belleville, very, very, very angry. Jean sells her lands and takes to the sea with her two sons. She raises a small army and massacres the garrison at Chateau Labaud. She becomes known as the Linus of Brittany, and her eldest son, Oliver, will earn the nickname the Butcher. The mayhem will continue for the next 13 years until the Lioness finally finds another lion to settle down with. This is Alex Shrug's take. He puts these things together for us at tspwiki.com. What a gal. This is all part of what is now called the War of Breton's Succession, which was sold as a local police action to put down some rebels, but in fact was an excuse to continue the Hundred Years' War. England will win this little police action, but it will be a fireic victory. Um, you might want to know what a fireic victory is. Uh, well, Alex has put up a page for us on the wiki, so we'll know what that is, because I did not, I've never heard of that before. It is a victory that comes at such a high cost that it's questionable if it was worth it. Uh, so that is what he's saying there. It was a very high cost victory. Was it really worth it? Um, my take, I chose this one today because we talked about another woman that, uh, They grabbed a sword, cut her skirt so that she could run faster and went out and fought a battle yesterday. And I thought this was a good extension on that women. I think in many ways you don't know your own power. Instead, the fake power of feminism realized that we all have infinite power as a human being. And that when it comes down to it, if we have to do things, we can do things. Women are not weaker. They're just strong differently. That's my take. On the year 1343. For more on the year 1343 and history segments and everything prepping and uh, life, uh, you know, sustainable lifestyle oriented, check out TSP Wiki, tspwiki.com. Remember, you can become a contributor. All right, before I get into the herbs today, I want to talk real quick update for you guys on Permaethos. For those who have not heard of Permaethos before, it is designed to be a sustainable permaculture farm. We're going to be doing this in West Virginia with our partners up there, Charlie and Kevin. 
Um, Josiah is is left. He he left last weekend or this weekend, and um, he is uh, meeting with Darby Simpson and then heading out. Actually, he's meeting with his wife uh, at at her parents' house, and he's headed to Darby Simpson's farm do some consulting with Darby Simpson, and then heading up to the West Virginia farm, start getting things put together. And rapidly after his arrival and we get this thing launched, we're going to start videoing a permaculture design course on site at Elijah Springs Farm. If you haven't seen the video yet, I'll put a link in today's show notes. You really want to see this. It's pretty amazing uh, what we're going to be doing, the quality that we'll be able to bring together with this. I'd say that this is a PDC. If we sold it for $1,250, we shouldn't have to apologize for it at all. Never been done this way before. Never been done in this engaging manner before. And to have you know Josiah teach it, and then Nicholas Ferguson and I handle all the Q&A by video, that is, to me, as good as it gets. The money will help fund the farm. We're going to sell it to the first thousand people that buy it for $300. To say it's, you know, a third of what it's worth, I think is not a stretch. I really don't. The first thousand people that buy this PDC will have first consideration on everything that Perma Ethos does going forward. And I'm going to refine some ideas with my partners this week and hopefully next, next week on Monday announce to you some of the um, the, the advantages going forward of being one of the first thousand people to take our PDC and help get us off the ground. Uh, from a standpoint of having ways that you can partner with us far quicker than if we were to just do it by expanding new farms. Cause we're going to do that, but you know, we've got to, you know, at least a year into this one before we do a second farm. And, and then, you know, we kind of go slow, maybe two more. And then, you know, by the third year, maybe we can, you know, get up to like a dozen. And the dream is, you know, five to ten years out to have over a hundred permethos farms. But a lot of you are chomping at the bit. You want to be part of what we're doing. And the whole idea originated with just a community model that had too many things in the way, a survival, prepper, libertarian community model. And I want to expand the community more rapidly than we can do the number of farms. And I want to do it in a way that benefits everybody that's involved, that chooses to be involved at different levels and different layers. I want to be able to help people establish their own businesses as quickly as possible. And I want to do it in a way where we create an opportunity for ourselves with a farm of over 110 acres to be able to procure things from our own members. So instead of selling you, we're buying from you. That's my thought process. And I, I think I have a good way to do it. I just need to refine everything and make sure that uh, my partners are okay with us rolling that all out that way. And, and, and stay tuned on Monday. I'll come back and tell you more about that. But it looks like it's going to be May the 20th for the official launch. We're getting all the financials taken care of so that we can take the money in without it going into my pocket. It has to go into the company's coffers. Uh, I don't want, you know, I don't want anything else other than that. Um, but May 20th, why May 20th? A lot of you guys played the game. I haven't gotten back to any of the winners yet. I'm going to give away a few free MSBs for a year in the first person. Uh, I'll give you one uh, a lifetime membership to the MSB. The reason we chose May 20th, that is the day that Abraham Lincoln uh, signed the Homestead Act. So that's why we chose that, because it was the true enabling of the settling of American homesteads. Um, and, and this is a new method of homesteading without the government's help. In fact, in spite of the government's uh, objections, uh, in spite of the government's hurdles, in spite of all the crap the government's done, we're doing this anyway. So I invite you to come along with us. 
please consider joining uh, as a founding member and taking our PDC. Uh, and I've had people say that 300 bucks in one shot is a bit much. We're probably going to do something like a $110, $110, $115, three payments for those that want to pay out over time. Um, that way we give a discount to those that pay up front and full, but we also make it more accessible to people that might struggle a little bit more with a $300 one-time payment. Anyway, that's the update for today on Perma Ethos. Let's get into the, the main topic of today's show, which of course is 10 herbs that are perennial in nature. Um, I don't say this in the subject of today's show, but there's like an added bonus in these herbs. And that is that all of them are either easily propagated from root cuttings or just from cuttings. What this means is once, you know, if you, even if you had to start out with seed, and you can probably get plant or root of any of these varieties of plants I'm going to talk about today, once you get one or two established, you can clone and clone and clone and clone more of them, either from digging up root uh, outgrowth or digging up the plant and dividing it, or just taking cuttings off the plant, rooting the cuttings, and then putting them into a pot or into the ground, so they're easily propagated. Why is that important? Um, I'll tell you in a second, because what I want to tell you next is my disclaimer for today's show. Um, in the past, I've done a lot of stuff on herbs, and I've mostly stuck to herbs that are very safe, both medicinally and culinarily. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is stuff like, you know, if I'm talking to you about parsley, it, it, parsley actually has a lot of medicinal qualities, a lot of antiviral, antibacterial qualities, but you can't really hurt yourself with parsley. And the reason that I've done that is because I don't want anybody listening to me and saying, well, Jack said this stuff's good, so I'm going to go out and eat it like an apple and kill myself. Because the truth is, I'm not a master herbalist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not even a nurse. I am not qualified to give medical advice, and that is a big-time disclaimer today. Some of the stuff I'm going to cover today can be toxic if used the wrong way, or it may have a bad interaction with other herbs and medications. Some of it should not be used during pregnancy or in other situations. I will tell you some of the, 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 the cautions when I talk about these herbs, but I'm going to tell you it's not only impossible for me to mention all the negative side effects of everything I'm going to talk about today, I'm not qualified to do that either. The use of any herb on this podcast is done so at your own risk and should be done only with proper research and consultation with a, with a qualified professional. So with all that, you might be wondering why the hell I'm even doing this. Why would I go out and talk about herbs today like black cohosh, uh, and, and, uh, L campaign, um, and bloodroot. These are ones that have some real potential to have some bad effects. Uh, or, you know, even comfrey. I'm gonna actually tell you why I think all of the bad press around comfrey is BS today. Um, here's why I'm gonna do it. <sighs> the reality is we may need these herbs in a grid down scenario. You know, valerian can be overused, it can be a problem, but it, it is basically herbal value. So it has an extensive value if nothing else is available. And in a grid-down scenario, as, as communities are formed, and I believe that they would, uh, because that's what humans do. If you take a whole bunch of prisoners, dump them on an island, and leave them there, you come back later and you have a place called Australia. Uh, we we co cooperate when we need to. Humans do what's in their own self-interest, and in general... Cooperation is in our self-interest. 
And in that situation, you might have a doctor or an herbalist or another professional that knows how to take and make a, an extract or even do something like make opium from poppies or, or whatever it is. But if they don't have the plant, they can't do it, or they don't have enough of the plant, they can't make enough of it for the needs. So if we have the stuff being grown and known and, and propagated, if we ever get in that scenario, it can be used. So that's like the, the out there reason. The other thing is a lot of the stuff can be safely used with proper research. I'll leave that choice up to you. Some are great niche plants in your systems. They attract pollinators and things like that. Comfrey, for instance, is the preferred plant above all others for spiders to overwinter in. So if you have lots of comfrey on your property, not only does it do all the wonderful things comfrey does, but spiders hang out in it, and those are great predators for your garden. Some are dynamic accumulators and things like that. A lot of times if you have some herbs and different plants that are mildly toxic in your overall pasture plantings and things like that, Your, your livestock are going to sit there and gorge on it and kill themselves. I've said this before, but as a hunter, I've spent, you know, if you added all the hours up, probably years standing in tree stands watching animals. And I've never seen an animal in the woods walk up to a plant, chew on it, fall over, and die. Animals have an innate intelligence, but I'll tell you what. In general, they know what they're doing. And if you don't lock them in a cage and feed them something that will kill them, where it's the only thing they have to eat, they're not going to eat enough of anything that's going to be toxic and kill them. If you think about it this way, we plant ornamental plants all the time that are highly toxic if consumed, like oleander, for instance. So oleander will kill you dead if you eat it. It also tastes like crap. But we don't see kids falling over and dying and pets falling over and dying, even though stuff's planted all over the place. So... I think that we can't just be afraid that a plant is called toxic to plant it and use it if it does good things for us. Um, you know, another example would be foxglove. Foxglove is used to make the drug digitalis, which is used for heart treatment. For for you know, and and digitalis is deadly. I mean, if you just start munching on foxglove, it will kill you flat, lying dead. And people grow it, and yet you don't see people falling over dead all over the place. So I don't think we need to be afraid of it. Now, I do have this to say, though. I think that no matter what you're growing, because even when you know that everything you've planted is edible, you don't know what just pops up and what some dumbass is going to do. Please, if you have a highly edible landscape and you do tours or even just have friends over, you need to tell people, because some people are stupid, because they are, just because most of what's here is edible doesn't mean everything is. In Eric Tosemeyer's book, Uh, perennial vegetables, no, uh, Paradise Lot was the book where this is. He mentions they had one plant that was considered toxic. And they were doing a tour, and some tool just grabbed it and ate it. And they ended up having this guy's stomach pump, which is probably unnecessary. But they pretty much got rid of any toxic plant in the backyard. I think you just tell people, don't be stupid. So if you're if you're growing some of this stuff, I suggest you you know make sure you do that disclaimer. But I suggest you do that anyway. You tell people, if you don't 100% know what it is, ask me before you touch it, let alone eat it. It might be a good edible. You know, it might be stinging nettles. You still don't want them touching it, do you? If they don't know what they're doing and how to handle it properly. Because I can just see some idiot devouring foxglove or destroying angel mushroom and ending up dead because of such foolish behavior. So that's my other disclaimer today. And with all of that said, I want to get into talking about these herbs. So the first one I've mentioned already is called black cohosh. Black cohosh is used mostly, it's the root. And it was first used for medicinal purposes by Native Americans who introduced it to European colonists. It's a popular treatment for women's health uh, issues and has been since the mid-50s in Europe. 
It's used to treat symptoms like menopause and premenstrual syndrome, uh, painful menstruation. It's also been used for things like acne, weakened bones, and it's been used by midwives to help induce labor, though pregnant women should not take it. Um, it contains some chemicals that have effects in the body. Some work on the immune system, and some might affect the body's defenses against diseases. Is, is what it's, in. it's also used to reduce inflammation. I mentioned Western Botanicals. Uh, they have a pain relief formula, and that's something that I use when I'm a little bit beyond just a little stiff and achy, if I actually have some, some legitimate pain. And one of the things that's in that pain relief formula is black cohosh. What I like about black cohosh is it's a great big plant, and it is really tolerant of shade. Um, you can grow in up to 65% shade. In fact, it kind of like that's pretty good place to grow it. It grows large and it has big spikes of flowers. And when you see flowering black cohosh, uh, generally you hear the sound of because there's bees and little bees and flies and all kinds of stuff just all over it. So it's great for attracting pollinators. It accumulates a lot of biomass because it's a big plant. So that means that at the end of the season, as it goes back to the ground, as it goes dormant over winter, it puts a lot of mulch to the ground. Kind of like sweat areas. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's propagated from roots. Uh, so you can take divisions and cuttings off roots and propagate more of it, or you can start it from seed. It's much easier to do from seed, and it's not a hard plant to do from straight cuttings either, so you can propagate a lot of it. It is a plant that has been over-harvested because of its beneficial use for medicinal purposes in the wild. So it's not endangered or anything like that, but it is pressured. So if we're growing it for use, then we're not harvesting it unsustainably for use. Now, the, the thing is, if it's harvested the right way, you know, where you take some of the root and you take cuttings off and put it back in the ground and it grows back and you only harvest from a patch, you know, every two to three years, you don't have a big problem. But mankind is, is such a nature that if we're doing something for money, we take all that we can get, unfortunately. And that has happened a lot with black cohosh. It's happened with blue cohosh. It's happened with echinacea. Uh, as easy as echinacea is to propagate, it's been over-harvested in the wild. So that's really one that you can consider propagating and planting just to take pressure off of its use uh, in the wild. And that's also one with a pretty good market of herbal uh, product producers that you could sell to. Um, here's some of the more traditional uses for it from Native Americans. They use the, the roots... Uh, to treat kidney ailments, malaria, rheumatism, and sore throats. That doesn't mean it worked. That just means that's what the Indians believed that it did. Early American settlers turned to it for bronchitis, droopsy, fever, hysteria, and nervous disorders. Uh, that was also used on rattlesnake bites, though I think that might be more of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, placebo effect than anything else. Though it might have a bit of a drawing characteristic that might help with reducing long-term uh, necrosis of the tissue, but I'm not sure about that. It was also used for yellow fever, which I, I think mainly would be because they didn't have anything else, and yellow fever sucks so bad. 
Um, it was also known for easing PMS and menstrual irregularities, which is what it's mostly used for today. Um, there's been dozens of case studies conducted throughout the 80s and 90s to confirm that black cohosh is good for mental menopausal symptoms uh, and has scientific validity. Uh, there was one study in Germany that involved 629 women and black cohash improved physical and, and, and psychological menopausal systems in more than 80% of the participants in four weeks. Now, a, a drug manufacturer would be waving a flag of victory at 80%. If they get improved symptoms in 40%, they start, you know, getting it through FDA and telling you, and advertising it and telling you to ask your doctor about it. Improved symptoms in 80% is way belong, uh, beyond like a statistical anomaly. Uh, there are some interactions to be considered here. These are from WebMD, so this is the official medical establishment warnings, okay? Um, number one, pregnancy and br breastfeeding is possibly unsafe and is just advised not to be used. There's concern that black cohosh might worsen existing breast cancer. Uh, women who have breast cancer or have had breast cancer in the past and women that might be uh, high risk should avoid black cohosh. Um, there is considered uh, dangers for endometriosis, fibroids, ovarian cancer, and uterine cancer, other hormone-sensitive conditions. Um, basically, back, black cohosh acts like estrogen in the body to a degree, and there's some current concern it could worsen those conditions if you already are sensitive To, to the hormones. So it's more along the lines of it could aggravate existing conditions, not so much cause them. Liver disease, uh, some reports suggest black cohosh might cause liver damage. It's not known for sure if the cause of liver damage in these cases until more is known. People with liver disease should avoid taking the, the this product. Kidney transplants taking the product containing black cohosh plus alfalfa has been linked to a report of a kidney transplant rejection. I'd say that's ridiculous uh for one time for that to happen and organs are you know rejected many times there's lots of reasons that organs get rejected there's lots of drugs used to try to prevent organ rejection uh so I, i'm just going to tell you that black cohosh has a very long um long track record of being used and it it seems to work pretty well for most people There are some drug interactions that need to be taken into consideration. I'm not recommending you go out and just start making your own concoctions of this stuff. With any of this stuff, I think more research and, and consultation needs to be done. But I think it's a plant with a lot of value, both from a standpoint of ecologically on your property, for potential medicinal usage. Think about all of the issues that women have. As they go through menopause, perimenopause, postmenopause, uh, irregular menstrual flow, think about why women spend more money than men do with all things else being equal on health insurance because they're more high maintenance. I'm sorry if it offends you women, but you are. You guys have a much more uh, ongoing relationship with medical establishment than men do. Um, men, we tend to either be healthy or we fall over and die. Women have a lot of maintenance issues going on along the way. Now, imagine that all of that med uh, medical establishment stuff is either not available or in very short supply due to a crisis. And how, value would, how valuable would be the knowledge of herbs like this and inventory of them 
and the stuff necessary to process them. And they don't all have to exist in one place. If you have the knowledge and processing with one member of a group and the productivity and the growth and, 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 and inventory with another member of the group, it can work together. And that's how I want you to think about a lot of things today. Uh, we're going to move on to the next herb, comfrey. Comfrey is an herb that I believe has an absolutely unjust bad reputation for PSAs that can cause liver failure and liver cancer and kill you and ah, you're going to die. In spite of the fact that this herb has been used safely for over 10,000 years by human beings, um, there's been scientific research that said this stuff will kill you. And it's been banned for internal use in the United States and Australia. Um, I'm going to read you part of the best rebuttal I've ever read, and this is on the Garden Web Forum. I'll put a link to the entire thread today, uh, but this was the best rebuttal I've ever heard to the supposed you know, toxicity of, of, of PAs. And then when I get done with this, I'll talk about the actual herb and why you'd want to grow it. But again, supposedly if you take comfrey internally, it can damage your liver, it can cause liver cancer, it can kill you, blah, blah, blah. Well... I'm about halfway through this guy's rebuttal, and because he, and he says, very, and I'll just give you the summary of what he says up to this point, basically, the medical establishment is full of crap on this, and so are many herbalists who claim that it cures all manner of disease and it can't do any harm at all. And he gets to this point, he says, so what are the facts? The relevant issues can be embodied in the form of six questions. By dealing with these questions, the facts can emerge. How do the toxicological studies on comfrey compare to those commonly used Uh, plant substances. The first study, Balkovner and Associates, was concerned with the acute and subacute toxicity of PAs. Extracted from Russian comfrey leaves, uh, these PAs were administered by injection. So it's difficult to relate this to oral use of the comfrey leaf, but ignoring this. So they, they injected the straight extract of the leaf into rats. We can convert the injected doses of alkaloids in rats to the equivalent oral human dose of leaves based on the fact that the leaf consistently contains 0.33 milligrams of alkaloids. Whether it is old or young, these projections are given in Table 1. Clearly from this information, normal human consumption of a few leaves per day does not pose immediate threat to health, a fact caused by Kovner. Listen to this. This is, this is the one of the studies that the, the, the ban is based on. The dose needed for death is impossibly high. How could anyone possibly consume, are you ready for this, 66,300 comfrey leaves at one sitting, more than the person's body weight in comfrey? How could one consume this amount over 10 days? Yet a coroner has reported on the basis of medical opinion that someone died of acute comfrey poisoning. This is a travesty of common sense. Clearly, it is impossible to die from acute comfrey toxicity. Other factors must have been at play. Even to show some mild impairment of liver function, one would need to consume 4.5 kilograms of leaves per day for three weeks, assuming 5 grams per leaf. Yet there are two medical papers associating by hearsay only acute PSA toxicity in the form of veno-occlusive disease with comfrey medications. In neither case was it verified scientifically that herbal preparations used by the subjects contain comfrey. Whoa! Whoa, wait a minute. Okay, you get that. The, the, this, this, this medical science blamed 
the 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 toxicity on Comfrey, even though they actually never verified that the subjects took Comfrey. Also, it was it was not ascertained that there was the only source of PA intake. So could they have gotten the PAs from other substances, like, oh, I don't know, purslane, and many different vegetables that people eat have these, these alkaloids in them. This is a travesty of scientific method, poor reflection on the journals which accepted these articles for publication. Doubly so because once something is in print in a journal, it is often quoted in a superficial way as fact, with no analysis to the validity of the original information, as is the case here. So there's more to it, and the guy just dissects the whole thing. But when it comes down to it, what we see with toxicity from Comfrey, is here's some basic things that we would need to see. Based on the, here, despite all rhetoric, there are in fact only two full-scale toxicological studies on Comfrey. To quote the other publications, which is merely interpret the findings of these two studies, does not conduce, constitute additional evidence. In other words, just because somebody did some research, published their findings, and then other people interpreted it and continued to publish more and more on it without doing any additional research doesn't let any doesn't make it any more valid than the initial report okay let me go back to the reading professional review alkali dose effect equivalent in humans for rat dose of leaves <laughs> you would need for death 66300 leaves <laughs> there would be no effect from acute onset with 16,600 leaves. So the rats that were given an injection equivalent to 16,600 leaves at PAs out of comfrey had no effect. Reduced liver function, 890 leaves a day, so you can do it with 890 leaves a day, over three weeks, nine doses. So it just seems preposterous to me that there's any fear uh, of the of the use of comfrey internally. Now, I'm telling you this is all my opinion, okay? And I'm not telling you to go out and start eating gobs of comfrey. And I don't think anybody would. It doesn't taste that great. But I think that it can be used internally. Again, this is my opinion. I am not a medical professional. I'm giving you that disclaimer. But I think the government is full of shit about comfrey. And I think it's one of the best medicinals we can get our hands on. Now, as for its uses, number one, it is used heavily as a forage crop for wildlife. I read a book. It's an awesome book. It, it's, um, it's called Comfrey Past, Present, and Future by Lawrence D. Hills. Um, he talks about some of the early research done on comfrey and feeding it to hogs. And basically, they were able to kill pigs with it when they fed them a diet that was 80% comfrey or more. So, so when 80% of their total food intake was... But he, he explains the balkings, how the different numbers came to be. It's a wonderful book on the cultivation uh, and research done and all of the things that comfrey can do for us from a standpoint of providing protein for livestock. And in that book, and then in further research, I learned how much of this stuff is eaten every year by livestock, and it's massive. Goats are eating it, cows are eating it, chickens eating it, and they're not falling over and dying. You feed it to chickens as part, not... See, if you feed anything 100% of something, you might kill it. Probably do it with corn, especially if it's GMO. So... But when, when it's fed as part, it darkens egg yolks and it increases the protein content of eggs. 
Um, it is the most amazing wound healer I've ever seen. We were here at the last workshop, and I had four big uh, pots that I had thrown some comfrey crowns into and grown the roots out so I could cut them up and propagate them throughout the property and give a bunch of them away. And I had some students, and one of the pots, these are like a big, like, four-gallon rectangular pot. One of the pots the it was sitting in the greenhouse, and the ants kind of went up underneath it, and the whole pot was full of fire ants. So I've got this these two big comfrey crowns and all these roots I'm trying to pull out and like a kabillion ants. So I turn the pot upside down, I start hosing it down, I start pulling the roots out quickly, trying to keep the ants off me, and in getting all of that out of there with a kabillion angry fire ants, I got bit one time on the wrist, just one time. And you know, the plants were growing a bit, even though it was early spring, so I took one of the leaves and you could see the welt starting to come up from the fire ant. I mashed up the leaf and I put it on on the, the bite. And we had a pretty big stu uh, circle of students, about 10 students. And by the time the student from the farthest part of the circle got over to look at my wrist, the swelling was gone and the bite was, it, you couldn't see it. Now, fire damp bites usually don't do that. They get a big old swelled up and then they end up, you know, looking kind of gnarly the next day or two. Um, it, it, people watching it that actually watched that happen, like, so this is some kind of voodoo crap or something. It's not. It's just the way the plant acts. We had another person here. We have pictures of this at the TSP Flickr channel. If you go through all the pictures, you can find them. Um, that burned his wrist pretty bad and put comfrey leaf on the burn. And then the next day we took pictures of it. It looked like, this is layman's eyes, right? But five to ten days worth of healing done in one day. It was the person that experienced it said, this is, this is crazy. This is what this plant can do. And it has the ability to do that both with leaf and root. I personally believe, now I'm on opinion disclaimer again, right? I personally believe that it strengthens liver used in moderation. I think many things that can damage something, damage it when used to excess and strengthen it when used in moderation. Many medications work this way. There's many prescription medications that are for problem A. And if you take a shitload of it, it will cause problem A to get bigger, but a little bit of it is, has a corrective action. I believe that herbs are generally safer. I believe that more people have died from the proper administration of prescription drugs than have ever died from the use of comfrey in 10,000 years. And, and while that's opinion, I defy anyone to prove me wrong. I defy anyone to prove as many combined deaths due to comfrey use in any way, shape, or form in 10,000 years against the number of deaths from properly prescribed and administered prescription medications in the year 2013. I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. So you're getting a feeling for how important I think comfrey is. Comfrey, to me, is one of the most miracle plants that we have. One of the things you actually have to use caution for is how effective it is. This is what I mean. If you had a wound that was somewhat infected, That, you know, a doctor would say, you don't want that wound closed yet. You don't want to put comfrey on it yet. You want to put some type of a drawing and healing herb on first and get the infection removed because comfrey will at times actually grow skin over an infected wound and bury the infection inside, which is very, very bad. So that would be like one of the misuses of it um, that you would have to be. It also has a reputation for helping bones to heal. And that's been clinically proven. 
Um, there in, in the Comfrey past, present, and future, there are researches done with ulcers on aging, dying patients in infirmaries where they had like an ulcer that was like down to the point where you could start to see bone. And in medical science, this is in the 70s, so it wasn't like, you know, 1602, where we didn't have any modern medicine, had done everything they could to heal that ulcer. And they started doing a root pulse list of comfrey on it, and the lesions declined and, and basically healed. Um, and people that were very much at the edge of their ability to heal. You know, people when they're older, especially and in, in, in infirm, get to where skin is so thin you can almost just peel skin, you know, like skin will just break from pinching. So people in that condition experienced, you know, regrowth of skin at a time where they couldn't get anything else to do that, let alone even stop the spread. So to me, this has just so many uses. It's also, it is plant fertilizer. You take comfrey leaves. You cut them, you put them in water, and you let them soak until the water turns black, and you put that on your plants, and it's an incredible fertilizer. It's a great mulch. So you cut it, you just chop and drop it. It's a dynamic accumulator. It pulls about 18 different minerals, but it pulls specifically five or six that are difficult for other plants to get in high concentrations from deep in the soil by interacting with excites and fungi off of rocks and then makes it bioavailable to other plants. So it's got that going on. Propagation is easy it gets. You, you dig it up, you cut root pieces, you plant them, you get more comfrey. People are paying two to four dollars a piece for root cuttings and five dollars or more for whole plants. The root of whole plants. Four bucks for a crown. And we could be propagated so easily. Um, it's hard to find. It's hard to find places to buy comfrey. I bought it from Coe's and one other place I can't remember the name of right now. And it's hard to find. The guy at Coe's sells out all the time. You go to order, sorry, I'll ship in two months. I, I'm out. Um, and yet it's that easy to propagate. I buy whole plants, okay, and I cut three or four root cuttings off of that whole plant, plant the crown of the whole plant, and, and get three or four more plants out of that. Um, I've got 50 to put in the ground right now that I've got to figure out time when I'm going to be able to do that. It is easy to propagate, and it is an amazing plant. Um, and again, I personally think that any, any claim that it's completely unsafe for internal use is just government bullshit. And you can read the full rebuttal if you want to, but I really recommend comfrey for so many reasons in your garden. Uh, I practically just did a mini show on comfrey. I could probably do a whole show just on comfrey, but let's move on. So the next plant I have for you is wild ginger. This is not ginger root like you get at the grocery store. This is another northeastern plant. Um, I think a lot of really some of the best herbs in the world for medicinal use come from Appalachia. And uh, I, I think that this is another example. If you think about Appalachia, um, you, you've got uh, wild ginger, uh, black cohosh, blue cohosh. Uh, you've got golden seal. Uh, you've got ginseng. I mean, there's just so many things that come from that area. Uh, this is another one. It's, it's a Native American plant, and its medicinal qualities were well-known to Native Americans. Um, it's got large heart-shaped leaves, and it grows on short stems. They have a trumpet-like flower. Um, the, the tea has been made into root. The roots have been made into a tea that's similar in taste to ginger root, and it's valued as a food and a medicine in early early colonial North America. 
Uh, and, you know, we learned about its use from Native Americans. The leaves can cause skin irritation, uh, so you want to use gloves when you're harvesting it or dividing the plant. Um, it It's really, really easy to propagate from the rhizomes, the roots, so every time it's harvested, you can actually make more of it, and that's that's really a useful thing for it. It's another one of these plants that has, you know, the government has said it can be dangerous. It's got these uh, these things in it that in in you know uh, in in studies have shown that it, it can it can be toxic. Um, and I I think that again we're looking at a, a place where we've gotten out of hand with what we do with 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 rodents and then say it's dangerous to humans the uh the bugaboo in wild ginger is something called astrologic acid or aa and there were reports that said that yeah this stuff can kill animals and so therefore it might kill us but i'm reading an article for you part of it from honestfood.net okay let's start and assume that all wild gingers in north america contain 0.037 percent of pure aa by weight which is what they say is maximum. This is not true as the highest level tested in eastern wild ginger, but remember, western wild ginger had lower levels. But for the sake of the exercise, let's assume the worst. So two ounces of wild ginger root, which is a healthy handful, equals 56,699 milligrams. That means that those two ounces contain roughly 21 milligrams of pure AA. Now, I weigh 175 pounds. This is the author, not me, which is 79 kilos. I would need to eat 790 milligrams of pure AA to get the daily dose that gave the rats all those health problems. So I'd need to eat about four and a half pounds of wild ginger to get that daily dose. And remember, the rats were given this dose for three to 12 months. I'm still not sure eating wild ginger is another is a great idea, however. And he goes through how this AA, AA, this acid, may not be something that the body eliminates. So that it might bioaccumulate over time and certain things not to do with I'll put a link to this article as well. But I think, uh, personally, that wild ginger has a lot going for it if it's used in moderation and it does have some legitimate medicinal uses and it's easy to propagate. It likes to grow in moist, shady areas uh, and it's a good ground cover. So to me, this is another one to consider adding to your ecosystem, but know its limitations and know its potentially harmful side effects and don't go eating four and a half pounds of it a day and you'll probably be fine and before i go into the next plant let me just say it, it i'll tell you the real reason it bothers me that the government and the pharmaceutical industries create these illusions of danger uh, of, of moderate use and who the hell is going to eat four and a half pounds of ginger or let alone f wild ginger it, it's just absolute nonsense four and a half pounds I don't think I eat four and a half pounds of food on a day when I feel like I'm starving to death. And, and you know that the, the controlling the diet of these animals, this is why it bothers me. It's not just that they're slandering stuff, which in my opinion is what they want to do. A pharmaceutical industry does not want an herb that's effective out there. They want to, they want to, and I think that's why they got rid of comfrey because they're afraid of how many things it does that makes you not need them. But the bigger problem is they're so ridiculous in doing this. You know, 66,000 leaf equivalent uh, injection to a rat 
uh, kills the rat, and they say, oh, I could kill you, that they make people not take them seriously. And when they give us real warnings, I want them to be taken seriously. I don't want people injuring themselves, hurting themselves, or killing themselves. And some herbs can do that, as we've discussed today. So I think it's, it's, it's very dangerous. I think they're more likely to cause danger by looking like the boy that cried wolf and being ignored when they actually there should be um, a, a warning than they are to prevent injury by accentuating warnings, if that makes sense. The next plan I have for you is valerian. Um, valerian has such an amazing amount of uses, and I don't want to leave anything else. I'm going to read directly from botanical.com's uh, medicinal actions and uses for you on this one. Valerian is a powerful nervine stimulant, carmative, and antispasmatic. So a nervine is, is something that, that has a beneficial effect on the neural system and inhibits neural activity so it reduces the, trans, the transfer of pains. Stimulant stimulates. Carmative is a calming. So it has both a stimulant and a calming thing, and antispasmatic prevents spasms. It has remarkable influence on the cerebrospinal system. It's used as a sedative to the higher nerve centers in conditions of, uh, of un off nervous unrest. Um, the drug allays pain and promotes sleep. It is of especial use and benefit to those suffering from nervous overstrain, and it possesses none of the after effects produced by narcotics. During the recent war, when air raids, this was World War II, this is old stuff here, because, you know, new stuff doesn't want to talk about this. When aeroids were a serious strain on the overwrought nerves of civilian men and women, valerian prescribed with other simple ingredients taken in a single dose or repeated according to the need proved wonderfully effective, preventing and minimizing serious results. Though in ordinary doses it exerts an influence quieting and soothing in nature upon the brain and nervous system, large doses, too often repeated, have a tendency to produce pain in the head, heaviness, or stupor. And this is another thing I'm saying. Generally, if something in a large dose harms something, a lot of times in a small dose, you find that it actually helps it. This is one of the principles of homeopathy. Um, it is commonly administered as a tincture and often associated with uh, al alkali. I'm not going to skip that because I don't know what it means. Uh, anyway, it's, it's employed uh, to a considerable extent uh, as a popular remedy for cholera in the form of cholera drops. And this is old stuff again. This is right after World War II. The juice of the fresh root uh, uh, has been recommended for certain uh, as, a, as for its effects and a value of a narcotic as, as valuable as a narcotic for insomnia. Uh, it's an anticonvulsant for epileptics. It also has some influence upon circulation, showing the heart, uh, slowing the heart and increasing its force. It's been used as a treatment for cardiac palpitations. Um, I have heard people who have tried valerian in capsule form say that it has caused them to feel that their heart is palpitating or beating harder, uh, have an adverse reaction to it. I would say with any herb that it should always be used in moderation and you should analyze how it affects you in addition to the standard recommendations uh, and, and limitations placed on it by practicing professionals. Because what might be beneficial to me could be harmful to you. And I think that that's something medical science doesn't like to admit, that even though they kill people all the time with prescription medications, and they kill people all the time. And if you're a medical professional and you're going to tell me that medical professionals don't kill people all the time, 
with prescription medications, I defy you to look up the number of people killed by properly prescribed medications every year. And then say it's not all the time, because it is all the time. It's a hell of a lot more than one a day, I'll tell you that. It's a lot more. I'd like everyone out there, instead of me telling you to look it up for yourself, use your critical thinking skills. But valerian, again, is a great aid for sleep and to calm nervousness. And what I just read to you talks about valerian being used during World War II, where people in Britain were constantly hearing, right? You're talking about having a hard time sleeping and being freaked out and, and having post-traumatic stress disorder, okay? Um, this was used consistently because... You know, it wasn't easy to get a lot of the things that we take for granted today, either because they didn't exist yet or just because the whole damn island was under a blockade. They could only get certain things in. The whole island of, of Britain was under uh, rationing for the entire war on food and other substances. And this was used effectively for that. Now, as a prepper, <laughs> I want you to think about that. And I really shouldn't have to connect any dots for you. But as some of the scenarios that we prepare for, That might be a good thing to have around. Additionally, it's a beautiful plant with beautiful flowers that attracts lots of pollinators, and it's easily propagated from roots. It's also been over-harvested in the wild, and therefore it's been pressured. So it has all these things going on. And then there's a tremendous market, I believe, to sell valerian as plants and cuttings and roots to people that also want to grow more of it, because it's not the easiest thing in the world to find. Horizon Herbs was one place I was able to find it. Uh, South Mountain Herb, Herbs, they have a root store. They have it as well. But it's not the easiest thing to get your hands on. It does propagate reasonably well from seed. So you can get a bunch of started from seed and then begin to take cuttings from the roots, etc., going down the road. Um, and again, it's one of those things that since it propagates from roots, it can be harvested and sustainably be replanted. So that's another thing to think about why it's so valuable. Um, like most things with deep roots, it's a good dynamic accumulator, so it's good for the overall health of your system. Um, to me, it is a medicinal that if you're serious about being prepared for an uncertain future, should be there, even if you don't use it. Right? It's one of those things like, there's probably things in your preps that you don't generally use. Okay? They're there in case. Well, it might be good to have all the information and knowledge about how to prepare it, and have a plant planted, and it's just there. I'm just saying because think about the problems with people being just flat-out freaked out, the non-medical terms, just freaked out in a long-term grid-down scenario. And think about having you know that medical person in your group that you either have pre-assembled or you assemble after the fact and be able to provide that product to them. So don't always think about you have to be the one to be able to know what to do with it, though I don't think it's a bad idea to know. And there's all types of information out there. I'm not going to tell you how to make these preparations and stuff because, again, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a master herbalist. The information is available. There's all types of books. There's all types of websites. But you should always consult with a professional with anything that can be used to excess and cause problems. And there is some problems associated with excessive use of valerian. Cultivation. Um, it, it Again, it's really pretty easy to just collect it, take roof offsets, and make daughter plants from them. And if you do that, you can constantly make more. 
Um, so I've actually got some that I'm propagating this year from seed, uh, but I'm going to probably try to get my hands on some live roots so that I can move a little bit faster with my valerian production because my germination was poor and my plants so far are lackluster. The next plant I have for you guys today is called Dream Root. What do you think that does? Or African Dream Root. It's also known as Zosa, spelled with an X. X, I'm sorry, X-H-O-S-A. Um, scientific name is Undelea Zimholfe. I think is how you pronounce that, but I'm not that great at Latin, so I could be wrong. Um, but this plant is something that you can acquire pretty easily. It's easy to propagate from division, dividing roots, and it's also pretty easy uh, to propagate from straight uh, softwood cuttings. So you can root cuttings and then plant them. Um, so it's it's got a, a lot going from it from that standpoint. It's white flowers. It's attractive to pollinators. But it's called dream root. So what does that mean? It means it actually has been shown to enhance dreams, to create vivid dreams. And in some cases, people say to help people lucid dream. A lucid dream is where the dreamer becomes aware that the dream is a dream, a waking dream. And lucid dreaming is something that usually results in the person waking up. So most people in their life have had at least one or two lucid dreams, where all of a sudden you're having a dream and you, something tips you off, that's not right. I didn't know there were unicorns that farted rainbows for real. Where did that come from? Oh, I must be dreaming. And then they use something like, oh, well, if there's a wall there, maybe I can put my hand through it. They put their hand through a wall or you can fly or whatever. But usually what happens is as cool as a lucid dream is, you wake up. Now, there's certain techniques for lucid dreaming that help you stay asleep, and some people are really, really into this. And this dream route is something that can supposedly enhance that. Whether you just have deeper, more vivid dreams, or actually have lucid dreams, I don't know. I've read a bunch of accounts on it. Some people say it's the bomb for lucid dreaming. Some people just say, I have really cool dreams, and when I wake up, I remember them better. And some people say it doesn't do anything at all for me. But there's been no reports, this is one of the plans I have for you, I can say this about today, of any negative effects at all, ever, on this plant. I can't find a side effect warning on this plant. Um, and again, it's easy to propagate. Uh, Horizon Herbs has it. Um, $19.50 for three plants. So it's not cheap, but that's good if you want to sell it later anyway. Here's why I think this is cool. I've read enough on it. And I've, I did a lot of research for this show, guys. A lot of research. This show started a long time ago. To find stuff unique and different for you that you'd not heard of. Even though it doesn't appear to have any side effects, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any effects. And if something causes you to have deep, vivid dreams, it's having, a, 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 in my view, again, opinion, a positive psychological effect on the mind. And there's another reason that I brought this up. So we've got valerian that helps us sleep and calms us the hell down. But for sleep to be beneficial to human beings, a human must spend time in REM sleep or rapid eye movement. I'm off opinion now. This is, this is medically proven fact. You can let a person have a significant amount of sleep, but if you prevent them from entering REM, which is where the body basically becomes paralyzed. It's called sleep paralysis. So this is what keeps you from like 
kicking the wall, punching your husband in the face, ladies, or whatever, when you're asleep and you're dreaming and all this kind of stuff's going on. You know, where dogs have the little feet moving, right? Little, little rabbit chasing, but you don't see them like flailing, right? Their body is immobilized to a large degree. With human beings, instead of our feet twitching, our eyes twitch. Dogs twitch their eyes too, but I've never seen a person laying there with their, their, you know, doing the doggy thing, right? Um, In that state of sleep is where our mind processes the problems, uh, leads us to decisions consciously and subconsciously. Sometimes we remember a dream, sometimes we don't remember a dream, but either way it helps us our next day in dealing with situations. And if you deprive somebody from REM sleep, it's almost as bad as depriving them from sleep as a whole. So if you were in that long-term grid-down scenario where people were having trouble sleeping, and having trouble adjusting to a new reality, being able to reestablish REM sleep would be beneficial. I'm not saying Dream Root does that. I'm saying if it enhances dreaming, and you have more vivid, deeper dreams, those dreams in general do occur during REM sleep, so it may enhance the ability to remain there. I'm saying may, so I'm back to opinion. But to me, it's a very interesting plant, and the fact that it hasn't killed anybody or destroyed a liver... Uh, is it, it, it means it's safe for use. I'm sure someday some scientist somewhere will extract the equivalent of 452,000 ounces of dream root and uh, into a single concentrate and inject it into the brain of a rat and kill it and tell us it's dangerous for us. But as of yet, that hasn't happened, so apparently it's safe for use right up until they change their mind. Isn't that interesting how comfrey was safe for use right up until they changed their mind? Just saying. Anyway, dream root... And what I'm going to do, I didn't plan on this originally. I'm going to go back through the show notes when I get done with today's show, uh, even though it's going to take me quite a while to do so. And I'm going to put a link where you can get all these plants, even if they're out of stock order, just so you know you're seeing the same plant that I'm talking about. So Dream Root's another one. Uh, the next plant that I want to talk to you about today is called Elkampane. Uh, this is another one with some legitimate and maybe accentuated warning. .com reading its uses because it has so many uses. I want to make sure I get them in. As in herbal medicine, it is chiefly used for coughs, consumption, and other um, uh, pulmonary complaints, being a favorite domestic remedy for bronchitis. It's been long employed for many years with good results in chest afflictions, uh, for which it is a valuable medicine, as it is in all chronic diseases of the lungs, asthma, and bronchitis. It gives release to respiratory difficulties and assists, assists expert, exper, I don't know how they pronounce that, but it, it, it's an expectorant is, is what this word is trying to say. So basically, some cough medicines you take have an expectorant in them. So when you have congestion in your chest, you cough, it causes you to get that congestion, that mucus out of your chest. Its principal employment as a separate remedy is for acute, uh, catheteral afflictions. Um, and it has the ability, uh, it's seldom given alone, but it has the ability to work better in combination with other medications. The main reason I brought this up is as we look to a future uncertainly, and we're not sure what things are going to be like, and we can see a place where we have these illnesses, these chronic respiratory illnesses, And then think about not being able to go to the hospital and people with heavy, you know, chest congestions. Having something that would help alleviate that might be a really good idea. So L campaign, especially used with other herbals, has that potential. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to cultivate. Um, 
It's, it can be grown with seeds, but it's really easy to propagate by offsets when you take the roots. So when you're harvesting the mature root, you take the offsets and the roots will root really, really easily. Um, it's generally something that you want, uh, to let go at least two years before harvesting any of the root. So it's another one of those things you might want to get in the ground and get going now in case it's ever needed in the future so you have a sustainable supply of it. On side effects, it's got some that I actually believe to be valid. Pregnant or breastfeeding, don't use it. I, From what I've read, I agree with that assessment 100%. If you have allergies to ragweed and related plants, it's in a similar family. Um, so you're talking about ragweed, chrysanthemums, marigolds, daisies. If you're allergic to those things, uh, you may have an allergic reaction to L-Campaign. Uh, diabetes. Uh, there's some concern that it could interfere with blood sugar control. So if you have diabetes and use L-Campaign, you should monitor your blood sugar carefully is what MD, WebMD says. But to me, duh, you should be monitoring your blood sugar carefully if you have diabetes. If you have high blood pressure or low blood pressure, It might interfere with blood pressure control. So if you have blood pressure uh, problems, monitor your blood pressure carefully if you're using L-Campaign. Well, I think if you have blood pressure problems, you should be monitoring your blood pressure. Surgery. If you're going to have, um, because L-Campaign affects the central nervous system, it can cause sleepiness. So if you're going to go under anesthesia, it might, cause too much of an effect of the anesthesia. So if you're going to be going under anesthesia and you're using it as something I would stop using. I think these are all relevant, legitimate side effects of L-Campaign. There's no witch hunt against it. It's acknowledged by the medical community as being effective. They just say, well, our other stuff is more effective. Um, But this is what I was talking about earlier. So you have a potential for side effects. You have some potential for um, interactions. Like you shouldn't use this with any sedative medications because it's a sedative. So if you're on a sedative of some sort of prescription sedative and you add this, it can enhance the sedative nature. That's also legitimate. And my concern for the, the crap that government does with accentuating dangers of things, which are the most effective things, by the way, um, is that people then will ignore the legitimate warnings. And this, to me, is very, very legitimate, very, very common sense interaction side effect warning on L-Campaign. But I think this is another uh, great perennial medicinal herb that has, again, just think about what we've talked about, dealing with wound healing with comfrey, Uh, women's issues with black cohosh, wild ginger, which has a, a lot of different things that it can do for us as a tonifying agent, as a spice, because um, it can be used as a food. Uh, valerian, allowing people to sleep. Dream root, allowing people to maintain or better enter REM sleep for full rest. L-Campaign that has the expectorant capabilities to get stuff out of your chest. What I'm trying to do here is build you a pharmaceutical Uh, herbal medicine chest in the ground that hopefully you don't ever have to use. And if you build up this inventory, you can certainly learn about it over time 
and and work with it and learn how to use it properly. But if nothing else, it's there for that last ditch scenario, and it does all these things to en enhance your gardens and your permaculture systems. Uh, you know, on an ongoing daily basis because of the, the dynamic accumulation, mineral accumulation, the flowering, attracting of pollinators, creating diverse niche habitats. So it's got all these things going for it. So I'm hoping you're understanding now how I've assembled this, this grouping of plants for you. They just weren't randomly selected. I realize I'm going long, so I'm going to go a little briefer on the rest of the plants. The next plant I have for you is hyssop. Um, hyssop's well noted in the Bible. It has a long history of being used medicinally. It also has some side effect warnings. Um, it shouldn't be given to children because it's been given to children and caused convulsions. But in the things that did that, it was like giving them two to three drops of hyssop oil a day. Now, that when you get oil from a plant, you've really concentrated its active compounds. So hyssop is most often used as a mild tea. So I'm still saying not to give it to children, but... What is a child? Is a child 15 or is a child 2? And are you giving them, you know, so it, it's something that has, um, it's kind of a gray area, okay? And again, it's something I would only give uh, after consulting with a professional, my standard disclaimer. Um, it's a diuretic. It's an expectorant, so it also helps get the thing out of the, out of the chest. And it's an antiviral. So... It is something that helps basically clean out a system, and that's how it's noted uh, for its use uh, in in the Bible. That's that's how long ago we've been using it. Uh, I'm going to read to you from Horizon Herbs their, their statement on its actions. With the change of weather, we often come down with stuffy nose and other symptoms of a common cold. Hyssop, dried flowering tops, makes a, a singularly delicious tea, strengthens the lungs, clears the head, and flushes the system of toxins. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, as quoted from the Bible. Hyssop has a unique and universally well-liked aroma. It combines well, imparting a delicious taste to other herbal compounds. A hyssop bath is a lovely experience. Essential oil of hyssop is a very high-end fragrance, inexpensive, and much valued in perfumery. In much the same way that one's first snip of hyssop in the field cannot soon be forgotten, it is good to remember that this, this herb, when health begins to fade, it will bring the sun back from behind the clouds. Um, it doesn't have really a huge amount of, of listings of side effects. Again, one of the biggest things was not, not giving it to children. And I'm going to read exactly what it says uh, as far as side effects and where I think that it's a little bit disingenuous of the medical establishment sometimes, the way they report things. It says, in bold, children. And then it says, it's in bold, all uppercase, unsafe to give hyssop to children. Convulsions were reported in a child who took two to three drops of hyssop oil over several days. So one child who took two to three drops of hyssop oil over several days had convulsions. Ugh. Seizures. If you have a history of having seizures, don't use hyssop. It might trigger seizures and make them worse. Maybe this kid had predisposition to seizures. Maybe there was a reason. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but it also says that it's probably unsafe to use during pregnancy because it might cause the uterus to contract or start menstruation, and that could lead to miscarriage. I think that's a completely legitimate concern. It says it does. It also says it doesn't. We don't know if it's safe to use during breastfeeding. 
Stay on the safe side and avoid its use. That may be the case. If it has an unsafe um, you know, likelihood of causing seizures or convulsions in children, what goes into mom goes into mother's milk. Um, but it would seem it would have to be pretty concentrated. Again, when you look at, and it doesn't, see, here's the thing. This is why I don't like the way medical science creates this fear environment. So it's just two to three drops of hyssop oil over several days. Okay, did somebody take hyssop dried flowers, put them into something like olive oil, create a hyssop infusion of olive oil, and then give this child two to three drops of hyssop oil for several days? Or was it essential oil of hyssop? I mean, that's a really important thing to know there, isn't it? In one, you have this infusion. It might be quite beneficial. In the other one, you have an extremely concentrated dose. I mean, when you look at what it takes to produce an essential oil, how much plant it takes to make one little tiny vial, it's, it's pretty extensive. I don't think you would want to take two to three drops of peppermint oil a day. Uh, in one failed dose like that for several days, that could probably have uh, a, 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 un, you know, an unhappy result. I don't know what, but it's a very, very concentrated amount. You have to think about how much plant that represents, like the extract going into the rat. Again, I'm not giving you medical advice. I'm just saying, as you're doing your research, you have to temper things with this type of knowledge and talk to experienced herbalists who use this stuff and work with people on a daily basis to use it. Like just about everything else I'm covering today, um, if you harvest hyssop in the late fall and dig up the roots and divide the roots, not cut the roots, but divide, so they become those crowds, you divide them, you can make more. So you can propagate through division, and it also propagates really easy from cuttings in late spring to early summer. So in late spring to early summer, you go out to your hyssop, you cut off new growth, so the part that's grown that year, and you take it and you dip it in a little rooting hormone, and then you put that into either something like damp sand or perlite or just a, a water and keep it in the shade and maybe trim the leaves back. A lot of times with cuttings, it helps cut half the leaf off of, of the cuttings. It'll root, you can plant that, and it'll propagate. So it's very easy to propagate. Uh, you can propagate it from seed, but once you have an established plant like this that can be propagated from division or cuttings, it's much faster to make more that way. And again, I tried to make where every single plant today was easy to propagate once established and to go large-scale production with them and give you this cornucopia of pharmacological activity as well. So hyssop, again, one of the most well-known herbs to the ancients for healing and something that might be a really good idea to have around. And it's also, I mean, hyssop tea... You guys would like to make herbal teas. I like to do this. You know, a little bit of peppermint, a little bit of bee balm, a little bit of hyssop flower. Just a little bit. Just for the flavor and the aroma. So it has a culinary use as well. And used that way, it's extremely safe. Uh, the next one I have for you is called stone root uh, or colonosauria root is another name for it. Uh, it supports circulation. It even eases hemorrhoids, so maybe we could apply it to politicians because they're such pains in the asses. Um, it helps reduce the swelling of rectal veins, which is why it helps with hemorrhoids, which might not sound like great dinner conversation, but if you have that problem, it's a good thing to know. 
it assists blood flow by alleviating blood vessel contraction. It strengthens the walls of veins and assists with the reduction of blood poisoning. Um, people that have circulatory problems that cause them to feel cold all the time, even when the weather is warm, use this herb to gain relief from chills. So that happens a lot to us as we age. All right, so again, I want you to start thinking about something that improve, improves blood flow and reduces vein venous problems um, with poor circulation in a grid-down scenario. It also has antioxidant uh, action, so that's valuable. It's good for sore throats. I'm going to read to you. This is on uh, GlobalHealingCenter.com. Benefits of colosonia root extend to the throat and larynx. Since the late 19th century, many natural health practitioners have relied upon it for a condition that was once known as minister's sore throat. This is a condition that was observed to result in those who, like ministers often did in the late 19th century, spoke for prolonged periods of time with a strained, ecstatic, exaggerated tone of voice that resulted in congestion and of the vocal cords. This condition would then produce a sense of restriction, coughing, and even the inability to speak. People with this condition reported immediate relief after taking this route. Huh, why do I want it? How many times have you guys heard me after a big event where I've speak and do four or five presentations, come back on the air and go, oh, this is Jack Spirico. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this myself. It supports digestion, and a number of people have reported that it helps with overall happiness and decreased nervousness. So this is all from stone root. This is another plant that can be propagated really, really easily once established. Uh, I've read some pretty complex ways to propagate this through hardwood cuttings and using scion wood, which is kind of like grafting. Um, but let me read to you from a book. Uh, this book is is called Planting the Future, Saving Our Medicinal Herbs, because stone root is another plant that has been over-harvested. Um, and I'm just going to read you the one part of it. Root division seemed to be the most productive way to go, according to both Blakely and Fletcher. Using very sharp shears to snip the roots between the buds, it's possible to get several divisions from each mature root. When roots are dug and divided and replanted in the fall, harvestable roots are available in three years, allowing three full seasons for growth. Old roots can be quite large, according to Fletcher. He says some of the plants and their seed beds are eight or nine years old, and the roots are as big as his fist. Um, so it's something we can plant through division and root cuttings, and that gives us an awful lot of ability to propagate a lot of it over time. Uh, and with the benefits that it provides us, it might be something we really want to do that with for long-term scenarios. Or, again, I want you to think about everything that I'm telling you about today has certain value to the point where many of them have been depleted in the wild, and that means it could be a cash crop for you. So that's another advantage of growing these types of things. And once established, you just keep making more, you keep making more, you keep making more, in fact, at harvest, you can perpetuate more, uh, which is something you can't do real well with annuals. The next plant is called Wild Daga, D-A-G-G-A. It's also known as Lion's Tail or Lion's Ears. Uh, Leonotus leonorus. Um, it is a Afri South African plant. Um, it has a history of medicinal uses. I uh, use as a tea, uh, but it's also been smoked. There is currently a movement, now I'm not endorsing it for this use, I'm 
just telling you that clearly there's something about this plant that has an effect. It's currently got a lot of folks that are using it as a legal alternative to smoking marijuana. The um, reviews that I've read on that, people that have done that, say it's not like marijuana. That it's a, a euphoric feeling. It's it's not as is uh, is not as as much as marijuana. It's not as psychogenic as marijuana, but it has this calming meditative effect. So it, it it clearly has some use that way. And I'll let you do your own research into that if that interests you. But grid down scenario again. I'm just saying that there might be some value in something like that from, if nothing else, a barter implement tool. It's completely legal for its use that way. There's there's all types of places where people sell bags of it for people that want it for that purpose. Again, that's not what I'm endorsing it for. I'm just telling you that if it has that effect, clearly it has some level of of something going on within it that's valuable. It's a beautiful plant, though. It's a showy orange flower. It ends up covered with uh, pollinating insects and things like that. And it has a variety of other medicinal uses other than as an alternative, uh, uh, you know, legalized version of marijuana. I'm going to read some but not all of them to you. Uh, it was first, and this is from IamShaman.com. Uh, it was first used by the Kulakai uh, as a tobacco and introduced by them to the settlers as an amazing medicine chest. They made an infusion of the twigs, leaves, and flowers for skin eruptions, including leprosy. Twigs added to bath water give relief to muscular aches and pains, itchy skin, and eczema. A strong brew can be dabbed onto sores, bites, bee, and wasp stings. It is said to also help with scorpion and snake bites. The Zulu people use the root for snake bite, and they sprinkle a concoction of the plant around their houses to keep snakes away. That may not be, you know, that useful. Uh, the Zulu and Zosa make a strong brew of the leaves and use it as a poultice for snake bites. They also use a tincture of the root bark internally for snake bite. Um, a tea is made of flowers for soothing cough and cold remedy. Tea has also been used effectively for the treatment of jaundice, cardiac asthma, um, headaches, chest ailments, bronchitis, and epilepsy. The leaf is also smoked in the treatment of epilepsy or and partial paralysis, which might be caused by stroke, I'm just saying. It's known that the tea and leaves and flowers can be drunk daily by uh, our older generations for water retention, obesity, and hemorrhoids. So it's, it's a good tonic for the elderly. It's also much respected in the treatment of animals, um, many natives have a strong brew of the leaves and flowers and stems are used uh, as an anima in sheep's coats and cattle as well as humans. The brew is given to animals with respiratory problems, applied as a lotion of sores on stock and dogs, and as a wash for wounds, scratches, bee stings, and bites. Um, other folk uses for wild dog uh, from unpublished reports. Those are all published reports. Uh, treatment of cough, cold, influenza, chest infections, diabetes, hypertension, eczema, es epilepsy, delayed menstruation, intestinal worms, constipation, spider bites, uh, antidote for snake bite, relief from hemorrhoids, skin rashes, and boils. So um, I, I'm a little bit leery when something supposedly does that much, but some things do. Um, it is the case that a lot of times in folk medicines, the medicine has a real effect and it works for a lot of things. So people rely on it for everything. And if the person gets better, they say, oh, look, it worked. 
So I think it's something that probably needs more research. But wild dog or lion's ears uh, might be something you really want to consider just as the it's a show-stopping plant. Uh, and it's also easily propagated from cuttings. Cuttings will root well any time of the year, uh, but uh, they do best taken in early spring. So this is also kind of hardy to about zone 8-ish as a perennial. So you're either in a situation where you have to take this plant and really mulch the hell out of it, create a microclimate if you're not in at least zone 8 and well into zone 8 from what I've read, um, or you grow some in a pot and then you propagate your cuttings out into your main yard uh, every spring, which is a lot easier than starting seeds. It does start pretty well from seeds, but to me, if I can keep something alive and growing uh, throughout the year and propagate with cuttings, I know I can get faster results from cuttings. Uh, and this is going to be one of those things, I'm going to grow this, I'm going to try to establish it perennially, but I'm going to give myself... A, um, a two is one, one is none approach where some of this will be in a pot and be able to be protected from the freezing temperatures we get in the winter and others I'll put in a place where you've got good heat thermal traps and I'll mulch the hell out of it and we'll see how it does because I haven't been able to determine yet if this is something that you know dies to the ground and comes back from the root or if it's something that if it dies it's dead so some some plants you know they, they even go dormant or tree like but they'll come back and butt out. And some, if that top part of the plant dies, it's gone. And I, I haven't been able to figure that out yet with the wild daga. For those who've made the connection, daga actually means, in some places, marijuana. So it's actually known as wild marijuana. But again, I don't think that it has um, anywhere near the uh, chemical constituents that actual marijuana does. I do think it has a lot of benefit going on to it. And it might be very useful, again, in a long-term grid-down scenario. So the next one, Bloodroot. I'm going to actually just read you the medical establishment on WebMD, what they say Bloodroot is used for. Bloodroot is a plant people use the underground stem or rhizome to make medicine. Bloodroot is used to cause vomiting, empty the bowels, reduce tooth pain. It is also used to treat croup. Uh, hoarseness or laryngitis, sore throat, poor circulation on the surface of blood vessels, nasal polyps, achy joints and muscles, warts and fever. Some people apply bloodroot directly to the skin around wounds to remove dead tissue and promote healing. During the mid-1800s, bloodroot extracts were applied to the skin as part of a fell technique for the treatment of breast tumors. In dentistry, bloodroot is used on teeth to reduce the buildup of plaque. Plaque is a film of saliva, mucus, bacteria, and food particles that can promote gum disease. So um, let's think about some of these things here. First of all, I want to talk about cancer. There was a guy named Hawksley down in Mexico that had what he called a treatment for skin cancer that was a paste that was made from some other things in bloodroot that supposedly he would paint on skin cancers that would eat them away and remove them. Um I believe that he had it right. Uh, I read uh, a book about that. It's called When Healing Becomes a Crime. And the evidence seems to point to the fact that he had this right. Other people have tried to do it and cause disfigurations with it being too aggressive, used over too long of a time, have successfully removed tumors, but only to have them regrown or still be uh, cancerous underneath. But if all else fails and you have nothing else to use because you're in a post-apocalyptic world or something like that, it it's better than nothing. 
It is successfully being used still today for the removal of things like skin tags and warts used in moderation, applied topically, and monitored. Um, with breast cancer, this was used at a time when there was no other choice. And that the other choice was basically surgical removal of the breast and not in the sterile uh, operating room, anesthesia, plastic surgery available world of today where it was pretty much cut it off. And it was an alternative to that. And even in instances where it appears to have worked, it left women disfigured from the research I've done on it. So I don't think it's the cure to breast cancer or anything like that. Um, it's something to be used in moderation. It obviously has a caustic effect. It, it actually eats things. That's why it can do things like help reduce the buildup of plaque. Now, it's not something you would use every day in large amounts, but grid down scenario where you don't have a dentist to go into and with that high speed, you know, low drag, ongoing ability to remove all plaque for you with those super uh, scrapers and, and, and what have you, it might be a good thing to know. Um, it also, you know, if you look at something that has the ability uh, to uh, improve circulation in blood vessels, uh, achy joints and muscles, there's value to that. This is something you need to really know more about uh, before you use it because it can be overused. Um, you can get, if you get it in your eyes, it can really do you bad. Um, if you use it in high doses, uh, it could be unsafe. It can cause low blood pressure, shock, and coma used in high doses. It can also cause glaucoma. Uh, these are all medical warnings. And again, these are real medical warnings. These are ones that I don't think are taken out of context. Um, so it's something to be used in moderation. It, it tends to have no real interactions. It either does the problem on its own or it, it, it doesn't. It's something I would only use with absolute consultation with someone that knows what they're doing. A big reason to propagate it, though, is one, it does have nice flowers, so it's pretty. It grows in the shade. So a lot of folks, as you start building up your forest gardens and things like that, you end up with a lot of shaded ground that you want to put ground cover on. You want something useful there. It does that. But it's another plant out of the Appalachian region that has been over-harvested because it has so many medicinal uses. So it's a very highly, and this is, this is one that's up into the almost threatened category. Um, so it really makes sense for us to propagate it ourselves rather than continuously take it out of the wild. And on top of that, it does reproduce from rhizome cuttings. So as you harvest it, you can propagate it. So it has that going for it as well. Because it has some caustic effects, I would advise you if you're working with it, to use gloves, especially if you're cutting the leaves or cutting the roots, because it, it is almost like getting a mild acid on your hands is a way to think about it. Um, but a product that would, if nothing else, remove skin tags and warts through topical application in a long-term grid-down scenario would be good to both know about and have. Skin tags are very benign, but when you get them like in armpits or certain places where you have a lot of sweating and dirt and irritation. They become very irritated. If they become irritated, they can become inflamed. If they become inflamed, they can become infected. Now, if you're in a normal day-to-day -day life, you get an irritating skin tag, you can go to the doctor and have it burned off or, or whatever. Grid-down scenario. 
that little irritation can become a real problem. So again, I added it to this toolkit, so to speak, because it met certain criteria. It's perennial, propagated easily, threatened in the wild, highly valuable, multiple uses. Okay, so that's that's why it was included. And I've got one more for you today, and it's called greater celadine. And there's two types of celadine. There's a greater and a lesser. I'm talking about the greater today. Um, It is used for various problems in a digestive tract, including upset stomach, gastrointestinitis, irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, loss of appetite, stomach cancer, intestinal polyps, and liver and gallbladder disorders. Uh, it also can be used for detoxification and treating of menstrual crap, cramps, cough, pain, breast lumps, and that's not cancer, that's lumps, chest pain, fluid retention, and hardening of the arteries, high blood pressure, asthma, gout, and osteoarthritis. Um, you can actually use the juice of the root, much like blood root, uh, to treat warts, or rashes, eczema, um, but it's, it's pretty effective, and it should only be applied to the affected area that it's being treated. Um, it can be used on the gums for tooth pain and to ease tooth extraction. So it can be used kind of like oil of Clovis to reduce the pain of tooth extraction, though I think it might be a little bit uh, placebic in that effect. It might have a, a topical numbing effect. If somebody's yanking your tooth out, um, you're going to feel pain beyond what that's able to do for you. Uh, it's also chewed to relieve a toothache. That's the fresh root. Um, there's a lot of medical research that was done on celandine in Germany, uh, where they're much more open to these things than we are, that backs up a lot of the traditional claims of the benefits of celandine. So it's another uh, pretty much a, a, a medicine chest in of itself as a medicinal herb, as a perennial in your system. As most of the other plants, it's reproducible by the roots. In this case, through division, it produces rhizomes. So you want to give this this plant time to mature, three years or more. At that point, you can dig it up. The best time to dig it up would be late autumn or about mid-February, if you can dig your ground when it's that cold, and adjust to your climate where mid-February would be for mine. Um, you divide you, when you dig it up, it'll, it kind of divides, sort of kind of like lilies do, and you'll see different rhizomes. And you'll get when a mature plant five to seven divisions out of one plant. So you could dig it up. You could have one plant. And yeah, you've got to leave it in the ground two, three years, but you could dig that plant up, harvest two or three roots, and then plant three to four more and keep doing that over time and develop a pretty big system of celandine. Um, there is an awful lot of value in this plant. I've gone long today, uh, so I don't want to belabor it any further, but... Um, Gingivitis, warts, even herpes. It, it, it's some people will tell you it's a toxic plant used internally. Some people will say it can be used internally. That it's it's really all in the dosage and the usage. It's definitely a plant that has some dangers, right? So I've talked about plants today that I say like there's no danger. I've talked about plants that say there's a little bit of danger if you use it stupidly. Uh, but the government's overhyping the danger. I've talked about plants today where I said this is legitimate and there's some real dangers here. This is one to use caution with. But it wouldn't be a reason for me not to propagate it, plant it, and have it in my toolkit. 
Um, a gun is dangerous if you put it in your mouth, load it, and pull the trigger and blow the back of your head off. So just because a plant can be dangerous doesn't mean the plant in of itself is dangerous. Remember my warning up front. If you're planting anything that could be dangerous at all, ever, to anyone, and you have lots of edibles and somebody visits your home, make sure you tell them, hey, you can't just eat everything you see here. You have to think before you act. And if you don't know, don't touch it. Because even if you didn't plan anything that you think is dangerous, you may have without knowing it because you're like, well, that's not food, so I don't care. Or, you know, that big white mushroom with the little ring around the bottom that's called Destroying Angel. It's called Destroying Angel for a reason. It's one of the most poisonous mushrooms you could possibly consume. And some tool might go out there and go, oh, look, you planted mushrooms. So I do say, in addition to my general disclaimer today about making sure that when you're using any type of medicinal herb, you really know what you're doing, you consult with a professional, that you also just, as someone that might be planting edibles around your property, think about that not everybody is as smart as the average potato. Okay, and you might get somebody a little bit dimmer than the average potato, and they might eat something highly toxic like a piece of oleander or foxglove, so make sure you're telling people that when they come on your property as well. It just seemed like a good um, warning to provide in, in, in line with today's content. Additionally, I want to say this here at the end. Uh, again, I'm going to mention I will put links to Horizon Herbs for most of these plants because you can get most of them there. Uh, in most instances, I'll put a link to either the plant or the root because I think that's the fastest way to propagate. But that will be more expensive than seeds. If you use their search box and you want to buy seed from them, you can get, you can find the seed. I'm going to ask you guys to do me a favor, help me help you, right? Like the, you help me, I help you, right? Okay, do me a favor. I've got a favor to ask you, right? That type of thing. But this is a, a real legitimate favor that can help you. I have a feeling that over the next week, there will be an awful lot of orders going to Horizon Herbs, who I'm very impressed with the quality of their product, the quality of their seed, and their service. Very impressed. Very, very, very impressed, or I would not recommend them. Their assortment is beyond anybody else out there. I haven't found anybody with as much to offer as they do. I have emailed them twice, asking them to consider joining the MSB as a supporting vendor because I'm impressed with them. They probably have some marketing guy that gets that and goes, yeah, yeah, some guy with a podcast, he doesn't really matter. Delete. I don't have time for this crap. If all of you who order from Horizon Herbs... Put a note with your order. This is I'm ordering from you because I heard about you on the Survival Podcast. And Jack Spierko there wants to talk to you about doing more together. And they get a couple hundred orders, which is probably on the low side of what they'll get. I'll bet you, I'll just bet you that I'll be able to get in touch with them. And they'll go, oh, that Jack. And I might be able to get you guys a discount to who I consider to be one of the premier suppliers of herbal seed and cuttings, roots, and plants out there today. I was able to find things from Horizon Herbs that I could not find anywhere else at all, period. And I could find it all in one place. So while I could find another source of bloodroot or another source of, of, of whatever, I couldn't find it all in one place. So when you're ordering stuff like this, shipping takes a bite out of you. And if you want five different things, being able to order it at one place versus three or four different places saves you additional money. So I would love to hook up some type of a discount for you guys. Five, ten percent would be uh, a great discount I think I could hook up for you guys there. But that's, that's what I'm asking you now to use the power of community here 
and help me help you. Throw an order in and tell them, hey, I heard about you on the survivalpodcast.com. Jack Spirico has a lot of listeners. He recommended you highly. He'd like to talk to you about doing more together. That's all I'm asking you to do if you order. And uh, if you do that and I get you a discount, hey, that just increases the value of the MSB for you and for everyone else. I hope you enjoyed today's show. It was a different approach. I did have to say a lot of times, this is dangerous or this can be toxic or you need to know more. A disclaimer, 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 because I don't want to be sued. I don't want to lose my livelihood over somebody's dumb stupidity. And I think that even if somebody tried to do that to me now, like just being able to play this as evidence would be like, well, you were really stupid. Um And that is because I went into some plants today that are far more toxic, if used improperly, than anything I've ever covered before. I wanted to do that, though, because if you listen to my past shows on herbal medications and herbal medicines and herbal plants, I've never been able to bring you this much from a perennial, propagatable standpoint with as much utility and as much diversity as I have today. To do that, I had to go into a different world. And that tells us something about what we'll have to know to be able to survive if, God forbid, this is ever beyond just informational. If there's ever actually lives that depend on this type of knowledge, we can't just rely on the absolute safest of safe of safe. And in general, I will tell you this. This is my final Just disclaimer on why I think the government's full of crap on some of this stuff. Used properly, I don't believe I discussed anything today more dangerous than typical prescription medication. That there's actually greater propensity for people to do serious injury or damage or cause death to themselves through the use of prescription medication even properly prescribed. And I would, again, for those that get concerned about herbs and say there's not enough regulation and we need more government and whatever, please do me a favor. Please do me a favor. Look up number of deaths by properly prescribed prescription medications. Not overdoses, not improperly prescribed, right? Not improperly administered. Not, the, you know... Uh, improperly delivered. So the doctor wrote you a prescription for A, you went to the pharmacy, they screwed up and gave you B. You took too much of it because you used the instructions for A and you actually had B. But no, I'm talking about it was properly prescribed, it was properly administered, it was properly delivered, and it killed somebody. I don't want to give you the number even though it's at the tip of my tongue and I'm just wanting to say it because I think if you look it up and you don't know what it is, it will shock you. And it will tell you how much we have to learn from the world of herbs and natural remedies. So with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.